Welcome to the Luxury Listing Specialist Podcast with Michael Lafito, where top luxury agents reveal their best practices, plus interviews with real estate industry influencers, thought leaders, and luxury marketing experts. You'll come away from each episode with new strategies and tactics to dominate high-end homes in any market. And now for the latest episode of Luxury Listing Specialist, here's your host, luxury real estate expert, coach, and trainer, Michael Lafito. Welcome back to another episode of Luxury Specialist. I'm your host, Michael Lafito. Really excited about today's guest, but before I bring him on, just a couple reminders. If you have any questions at all, please type them in the comment section for our guest today. Please type them in the comment section for our guest. And again, for more information on our upcoming book, you can go to secretsoftopluxuryagents.com, Secrets of Top Luxury Agents. And for more information on the Lux designation, go to luxurylistingspecialist.com, luxurylistingspecialist.com. Again, I'm heading into the busy conference season, but before we go on the road next week, we'll be at the Miami Realtors Rock the Market, and then I'll be in Colorado, followed by LA. And I'm so excited to secure this guest. You know, from time to time, you you speak. I've spoke at other events. I've attended events, and and this is a guest that I've always wanted to have on our show. And I think of icons in the real estate speaking training industry, and I've seen Mike Ferry and Tom Ferry, of course, and uh, you know various speakers throughout my time. And uh, there's not too many icons in the luxury space. I say, you know what? I can relate to him. He's down to earth, but yet you could tell provides amazing uh, white glove, silver platter, silver platter, what I call VIP type service. And uh, I have that guest on today. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on Jack Cotton. Jack, thank you for your time today. That was great, Michael. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. I love what you're doing. You're an, an author of a book. You speak on a lot of different stages. I'm going to pull on on the, the screen an uh, image of, of your website here, uh, which is just jackcotton.com. And, uh, you know, you're known for a lot of things, but probably most known for the book on selling luxury homes. Uh, approximately how many years ago uh, did you release this book, Jack? I know they can find it on Amazon as well. Yeah, you can find it on Amazon. I don't know, like 10 years maybe? Yeah, 10 plus years, I would say. Uh, but it doesn't, but it's still, it's, it's still very current. Yeah, uh, you know, we get a lot of people purchasing our book on Amazon and, uh, you know, it suggests they purchase yours. And I'm sure when they purchase yours, it might even suggest ours as well. Again, sure. our book uh, is uh, LuxuryListingSpecials.com, LuxuryListingSpecials. Uh, we, we're about seven years ago, we released this, Jack. And uh, it's, it's uh, we get a lot of a lot of people downloading it or ordering it ourselves. So let's uh, let's get right into things, Jack. Uh, we're talking about luxury specialists. We have a lot of tips that we want to provide agents sure. as well as a couple bonus items for the consumers. So there's an old adage: you always remember your first. So tell us about your first luxury sale. Think back. I think you're coming on almost 50 years and for your own company selling real estate 50 years you told me offline which is amazing so uh, you know 1973 1974 
74. Uh, yeah, 1974. Um, you know, think about you know the progression in in, in this industry is usually you know entry level starter property. Maybe work with buyers first, then you know average priced, and maybe some high end. Some agents never sell luxury. Think back to your first luxury sale, and did you represent the buyer or seller? And and can you can you remember uh, going back to maybe how you how, how they found out about you or vice versa? Michael, when you're old, you remember all the stuff from way back. I can't remember what happened four hours ago, <laughs> but 40 years ago, no problem. Yeah, I found that too, by the way. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a funny question when I saw it because we just listed a little unbuildable piece of land on the water today, um, 35 feet on the water, and it's unbuildable little shack on the water, and it's a million three. And I was there with my associate, Maureen, and I said, Maureen, if you look next door, you see that little cute quintessential Cape Cod house on the water next door? That was my very first luxury sale back in, and I forget the year, but I'm going to say it was sometime in the 70s because it was my first year. I didn't sell a thing for my first year. I'm like, oh, I hate to admit that, but um, sold nothing my first year. You and, and me you, both, by the way. I, I didn't either. Yeah, right. So that's good. But anyway, um, so and it sold for $96,000, which back then was, that was a boatload of money. And I represented both sides of the property. And you know, it's funny when I talk to people about how do you break into luxury real estate, um, one of the things that one of the myriad of things I suggest is to find the maverick in your market, the person who is willing to take a chance on somebody who's new and audacious and unproven and just there. You can tell because they live in like a, well, like in this case, it was $96,000. Well, today that house would be, I don't know, maybe 4.9 million. So it's gone up a little bit. In, so, um, but you can tell they live in like a, a four or five million dollar house and they drive a 20 station wagon. So that's kind of what this lady was. She was the, uh, the maverick in her market. And, you know, I had been doing a lot of, um, I was so young, I was 21. My, I started a real estate company in my dorm room at college. Wow. And, and if you ever saw me, I mean, you would never list anything with me. I mean, never mind luxury, you would never list anything with me because I was in, I didn't know anything. But I knew that I had to be seen as an expert. <clears throat> and so I became an expert in markets and value and pricing. I took a lot of appraisal classes. Back then, there was no such thing as a CMA. We had the whole alphabet. We had all 26 letters. But no one had ever taken CMA and put them together into a CMA. And so I'm competing at the age of 21 with people who look like I do now, gray hair and wrinkles, which people associate with wisdom sometimes, well, most yeah, times. Hey, they're, they're so how do, I, how do I live on that playing field? So divinely, I was guided to becoming an expert. And so I did a lot of uh, valuation analysis for people, not appraisals, but I took appraisal classes and I actually did like a narrative appraisal when somebody called me in for a listing presentation. And so I was doing a lot of valuations for people for getting their property taxes lowered, for doing estate planning. This woman was a widow. I actually built my business on widows. In the early days, she was my first widow. You're and, young, good looking, single. I wonder how that, you know. <laughs> no, you know what it was really though? It's because I never knew my grandparents. Um, I knew one a little bit, hmm. but I really never had grandparents that I spent any time with. And um, it's a long story. I spent a lot of time with older people as a kid growing up. And so I adopted these widows as if they were my own grandmother. And I, and I watched over them and took care of them and guided them and counseled them as if they were my grandmother. And 
one led to another. So mm -hmm. I got it because of my expertise in valuation and the fact that she, her husband was a partner in a big law firm and big rich white shoe law firm, you know, and, um, and all his associates saying, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? I mean, this kid, look at this kid. He's an idiot. And, um, you know, but she was, she was, the she was the maverick in the market and she wanted to do, and you know, she's back in those days, it was different for women too, because they never made decisions. Every, they were always told what to do. And, the, and when her husband died, his partners are telling her what to do. And she was sick of it. And I grew up with a single mom and two sisters. I understood all that. And so <clears throat> she took a chance on me and, you know, I was in love with her as, you know, like a, like a grandmother and I represented her and I represented the buyer who bought it. And it actually turned in, there was another house down the road that second generation couldn't really afford to keep anymore. And that was like a million, that was more money. That was like 2 million. Wow. And so they needed to get out of there. And the next door neighbor wanted to buy that house. So I double ended them all as my wow. first luxury sale. So the, the kids from down the road bought this one. I double ended the one for 96,000. And, um, and then I also double ended the other one for, like, I was like, in the, it was under two, but it might've been like one five or something like that. But wow. keep in mind back then you could buy a brand new car, like a brand new, nice car, like an Oldsmobile, which back then was a nice car for like 12,000 bucks. <laughs> so I was, I made more money in that deal on that transaction than Harvard MBAs made in their first year out in the world. So wow. the numbers sound small today, but there are huge, though. yeah, it's all relative with inflation mm -hmm. has, um, has been rampant over the, my career. That's for sure. Yeah. Gotcha. I hope that was a not too long of an answer. No, it was but anyway, great. No, it was just, it was just, it's just fun because we listed this property today or yesterday and it's right next door to my first sale. So when you asked me that question, I was just sort of nostalgically looking at it yesterday when we were doing the photo shoot. Oh, that's so anyway, cool. That's really yeah. cool. Great timing on that one. Yeah. Uh, next next question I have for you, Jack, if you were to pick one thing that sets you apart from other agents in your local market when it comes to real estate, but spe you know specifically luxury real estate, what would that be? And then the second part would be what advice would you have for other agents that are looking right. to set themselves apart in their local market? Yeah, that's really two questions, but I'll take them one at a time. So first of all, honestly, Michael, there are people in my market with whom I compete who are better marketers than me. They're better socializers than me. They're better, they're better everything than me. The one thing that nobody's better at than me is answering a question that I ask myself time and time again throughout the day, maybe once an hour, maybe once every half hour. But I ask this question over and over again, and it's the question that answers all questions in this business, and that is, what is in the best interest of the client? And I answer that question and I live that question and I execute that question better than anyone in my marketplace because people talk about putting the client first all the time. It's a very easy thing to say, oh, yeah, I put the client first. Most people, when the chips are down, they cannot do it. They cannot do it. So I do. I can and I do. So what is in the best interest of the client? So when I when I owned a when my company grew and I had agents, they would come to me with like a moral dilemma. There's a fork in the road. What do I do? And you know, every time I would say, well, what's in the best interest of the client? And then they instantly knew what the right thing to do was. That's that's, so, a, that's a great point. And absolutely, yeah. we, we have a fiduciary responsibility to put the best interest of the client ahead of ours. But we know that 
unfortunately isn't always done. Well, I live in a really small town. My town is like 4,500 people. We have like 23 billionaires, if you can believe it. Wow. And we, have, we sometimes have a billionaire on either side of a transaction or just on one side or sometimes on both sides. I mean, you can't, you, you, I've seen these people all the time. I mean, you, you, and your, if you don't have your reputation, nothing else matters. So what is in the best interest of, interest of the client? Um, anyway, what advice would you have for other agents who are starting out in luxury real estate? Number one, hands down, become an expert. You need to be seen as an expert. If you talk to anyone in the high end about anything in a conversation at a party or something, they always talk about, oh, my elbow, you know, it's been so sore. I went to the guy who does all the elbows for the Boston Bruins or, you know, my knee went out and I went to the doctor who does all the red. So I mean, they always deal with an expert, whether it's medical, whether it's accounting, whether it's legal, they want to deal with an expert in every aspect of their lives. You need to be seen as an expert. You need to be seen as an expert in your market. Markets in value, know your market, then become an expert in pricing. What is your process for pricing? Then you need to be um, an expert in market preparation. How do you get properties ready for sale? Because that's the, you know, people call, I don't call it staging. I call it market preparation. And then marketing, how do you expose the property? How do you tell the world about it? And lastly, negotiation. You need to be seen as an expert in negotiation. I'm like this, I'm like this poor kid who grew up on the wrong side. We didn't have any tracks, but it was, if we had tracks, I was on the other side of them. And, um, you know, and I'm dealing with people, we, we sell expensive houses, but you know, the people I deal with are doing deals in the hundreds of millions, if not the billions of dollars. I always feel outgunned. So how do I equalize the playing field between myself and them? And that is to be seen as an expert, especially in negotiation. Uh, that's a great that's a great okay. point. Uh, thank yeah. you for that. Uh, again, uh, feel free to type in your questions. We'll ask those at the end. Uh, anybody that has a question for myself or Jack, uh, again, great information. The next question would be, how do you approach prospecting for luxury <clears throat> clients and what strategies have you been most successful for you in building your network? Truthfully, um, it was divine guidance that push me towards this expertise thing and becoming an, becoming an expert in markets and value and becoming an expert in pricing, how you take that markets and value data and relate it to one particular piece of property. That's really how I built my business because people in the high end are obsessed with their worth, their value, their net worth and their value. And they're obsessed with paying as little as in taxes as they possibly can. And the two taxes rich people detest are in order are property taxes they hate those but what they really really hate are inheritance taxes so these so if you look in your market and you look at who owns all the really expensive properties in your market they're typically owned by trusts or llcs or depending upon your estate because people want to get the property out of their estate to avoid estate taxes well when you put your property in a trust i'm not going to give you a trust seminar here but when you put your property in a trust one thing you need every year is an up-to-date valuation. So we're, we just got to, we're just doing another one today for one of my neighbors. Actually, he's got 50 acres on the water. It's incredible. And uh, we do it for him every single year. And after so many years of doing that, the, the trust becomes fully vested into the beneficiaries. Then the owner has to rent it back from the trust with enough rent that'll cover the expenses of the property. And the IRS looks very carefully at that because people have a tendency to make the rent fit the situation. So now we have to do a rental analysis. Mm -hmm. 
what's what's the fair rental value of the property so that's doing these valuation analysis for people really nice well-documented beautiful cmas are how i built my business how i differentiated myself from the competition how i equalized the playing field between old wrinkled gray and experienced agents and young dumb long hair agents and um, how i equalized that playing field is through expertise and that's how i built my business and we still get our my biggest sale ever a few years back was 100 i was doing all their valuation work helping them with get their property taxes lowered when they were over assessed helping them i mean she gave away gosh she gave away a piece of land to her sailing instructor um, as a thank you and the, the gift tax at the time was like almost a million dollars just the wow. gift tax and wow. so i had but i had to do the valuation to calculate the gift tax and i was helping with the irs um and i'm not a i'm not doing people's taxes i'm just doing the valuation work sure and really fighting for the value and having a process and having um a, you know a pricing expertise and background i mean i had the it finally got to the point in my career and she, this one lady's retired now um that's the other problem of being so old because half my sphere is dying and um and everyone's retiring except for me but um the irs would call me to look at someone else's valuation that i had nothing to do with because just to get my opinion of it because wow. they, they respected my work and my expertise my approach to valuing real estate and so you can disagree with me but you cannot disagree with my process yeah so, so jack on that particular client that you referred to how many years of valuations were you putting in before it led to a, a transaction? Well, there were some smaller transactions along the way because they were she was shedding property. She had homes all over the world. Sure. And she had a, she had a house here that she basically used 14 days a year. Um, the taxes, her property taxes were a million dollars. And she's spending two weeks here. The and, property uh, taxes, I, you said, were a million dollars annually? No. Well, I mean, realtors exaggerate. There were like 900 and some odd thousand dollars for property taxes a year for something she used for 14 days a year. 24 wow. full, 24 full-time people, 12 of which were security. And so- If you had to evaluate what that house was worth or that property, what, what would you, you know, 900,000 plus in property taxes? Well, we sold it for 20. We, we sold it for 20 and um, now it's probably okay. worth 30. Maybe, yeah. So where, where I was going with it is, you know, you put in time doing these evaluations, you know, we have other people watching, listening, you know, CMAs require time, energy, you know, so many people, time. Yeah. you know, so many people, Jack, are looking for that, you know, that, was easy. That, that quick, easy button, right? And it doesn't benefit them immediately, but indirectly, you realize that putting time, investing in your community in a small it was going to pay off through referrals or introductions, even if right. she wasn't buying or selling immediately. Correct? No, because for me, it was um, yeah, just being a just being in her, her little circle. She's a she was a historic person, and um, but I mean, other business came out as a result of it. You're right, but you're hitting on a really important point, which is that it's a long-term thing. It cannot be your only thing. You need to do other stuff at the same time. But you asked me how I get new luxury clients. Yeah. I mean, you, you could do expired. People don't realize there's a lot of expired listings in the high end because a lot of people who are second and third generation who came from money and the money's mostly gone go into real estate because they have a platinum Rolodex. They just don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So they list properties that don't sell, then you can step in. So there's other ways too, but the long-term solid foundation is by having expertise, acquiring expertise, 
and marketing that expertise to the key gatekeepers in your luxury market. So her gatekeeper, um, this guy's still alive. He's an attorney. He's probably like 101 now. She died at 102. Wow. I think he's 101 now. And um, but we had like you know it was it was a trip anyway. But they have other clients too. That when you're helping their big client, there's other yeah. clients too. So you do get other business along the way. But sure, um, yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where I was going. Many times yeah. people, agents have tunnel vision. They're worried about the sprint and not the marathon. But yeah, I don't get a deal next week. Marathon. Well, you know, <clears throat> it's like, I don't like the word farming and, and luxury because, you know, it's more, I like gardening instead. But you can't, farmers can't cram, right? They can't like screw around all summer and then decide, oh my gosh, it's September. We better plant, water, fertilize, weed, because I got I to have a crop in October. You, you can't do that. They have to start way back in the spring and get in the field ready, plant the seeds, do, do all that stuff. Well, it's the same thing in luxury real estate. Yeah. This year, you're tending the garden and you cannot rush it. Yeah. Great you, point. you can't rush it. Yeah. Great I never, point. you know what? I never, I never discriminated on price. The whole, the, the week I sold her house for like 19.7 or whatever it was, I sold one for 157000 that same week. And the $157,000 sale was life changing for the seller because it allowed her to pay for the kind of care she needed in the final months of her life. The, the more expensive house was like, we had a, she had a yard sale. We had an estate sale. We, we didn't do it, but my company had an estate sale for the crap in her house, right? After the sale, $250 million at the estate sale. Okay. Wow. So so the house was wow. not a big deal in her world. Right. Wow. Yeah. Talk about artwork and valuables there. Right. The artwork had already been donated. The artwork in the house. When I listed the house, I had an armed guard next to me the whole time. You know, when I was taking my notes and stuff, I was never, I was shoulder to shoulder. There was 12 person security force on this property with a building, with, a, with an armaments room. And because uh, the artwork was incredible, but it was the artwork had already been all donated. And she had a life estate so she could hang it on the wall for as long as she was alive. And this was in her two week house. Wow. This wasn't even her main. Yeah. So anyway, you, you, uh, you definitely have some great stories for sure. And yeah, very blessed to be have work with some really incredible people. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, can you describe a particularly challenging transaction in the upper price point in the luxury space that you handled? And uh, by challenging if was there an obstacle that you had to overcome or a difficult situation difficult seller difficult gatekeeper financial yeah. advisor uh, yeah so. yeah it's funny yeah when i read this question i started almost breaking out in hives because it just happened this spring um i saw my neighbor's house and um, it was one of probably the worst transactions i've ever had and my neighbor's this really nice guy he's very detached he just like he just does what people to tell him you know and he built this really awesome house and um, we were selling it. It was an awful transaction. And the big reason why it was an awful transaction is many times when you're selling an expensive property, this is like 11 point something million. And um, people who are involved in the transaction, like attorneys, <laughs> I'm going to be careful here. Um, but they want to, they, they want to perform. They want to show off for their client by by how do I say this? It's almost like you know how fire. This the people who like will set a fire, and then they'll go put it out to become a hero. Well, that's what I was dealing with in this transaction. 
Mm. And they were <clears throat> they were yeah, they, they, inter they, they interject sometimes and cr and create red flags that don't need to be there. Is what you're saying? And they actually <clears throat> he actually brought in the engineer who did all the work for this cellar when he was doing all the permitting through conservation <clears throat> and and started dreaming up things that were wrong with it and reporting it to the town conservation commission and just doing all the stuff. It was really incredible. And the other thing is this house is like, it's 11 point, I forget, 11 point something. And the, the buyers bought it sight unseen. They never saw it till after the PNS was signed. Even the, they, they never even saw it at the inspection. Wow. So they're, they're trusting all the stuff. So maybe the attorney was also maybe nervous because they hadn't seen it and they want to be super, but they were just dreaming up all this stuff, all these problems. And even the day of the closing, you know, the sellers moved out, all their stuff is gone. And um, we were supposed to close them one day. They pulled all this stuff. It didn't close for 24 more hours. And I'm down there, you know, with painters getting something, just stuff that should never have happened. But it was really people making it more difficult than it needed to be mm -hmm. to look like heroes to their client. Mm -hmm. And we, we do see that because I don't want to say that it's we're used to people in the high end, but we don't. I don't feel the need to perform or put on a show for them. We just do what we do. And we don't look for problems. We look to solve problems. We look to be collaborative with everybody. We don't look to try to screw the other side. And that's what I was dealing with in this transaction. The buyers are nice. The buyers are nice people. They're our neighbors now and they're 34 years old. They're only here for like the summer. And um, they were nice enough, but it was an awful, awful, awful transaction. It actually took, when you see my obit, Michael, when you see my obit, just know that is two years sooner than it should have been because of that. Story. Yeah. Okay. You, you already pre-wrote it. You got your 400 characters all ready to go based, based on that transaction. Right. Uh, right. I was actually yeah, just right. talking about that today with uh, with some some folks on how uh, legacy, leaving a legacy for your family. And some people are yeah, obviously prepaying for services and some people are pre-writing their obituary. But uh, uh not to sound morbid here. All right. So um, managing clients' expectations, um, obviously, there's going to be turbulence in a transaction, right? And that's where your experience comes in, my experience, other listeners' experience. Sometimes things pop up that we're not expecting. Uh, what's the best way to manage clients' expectations so they feel informed and satisfied with the services you provide? You know, many markets are shifting right now. Many markets are seeing days on market increase you know price adjustments deals fall through appraisals fall through uh what, what what's been your go-to to manage clients expectations so they feel informed and uh you know want to leave you a five-star review at the end yeah this is another great question because i'm old now so i can look back over life and i can report to you pretty confidently that probably the number one problem in life for everyone is unmet expectations. I don't care if it's in real estate. I don't care if it's in your personal life. I don't care what it is. The number one problem in living with people are expectations that are not met. The number one way to have that not happen is to teach people what they should expect and then exceed them. So we're very careful in teaching and telling people what they should expect from us and then we do more as simple as that so mm -hmm. if you exceed you got to tell them what to expect here's what we're going to do here's our here's our communication plan here's what you're going to hear from me here's what we're going to do for marketing i mean you let them know what's going to happen and then you do more but every, i'm very um even before i got old i was forgetful 
and so and scattered. So I have to have a system for everything. I have I had a system for opening the office in the morning, like like so I'd forget to unlock the front door, maybe you know. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have a system for everything, and that way you don't you run you run less risk of not meeting expectations. You need to okay. teach people what they should be, and then do more. We always do more. And I'm always trying to teach my kids that, you know, like I've got a nice under promise role. over deliver. Yeah. Like, like if you're supposed to be somewhere at 11, he thinks if you show up at like 11, 59 and 45 seconds, um, that's great. But, um, right. but yeah, you know, I used to have a coach that was the same way. Uh, you gotta, if you're showing up on time, you were late. Exactly. Uh, I know this is right up your wheelhouse because, you know, again, when I first met you, both you and I spoke at a Century 21 National Conference down in New Orleans, and I re remember taking this away from your presentation because at the time, you know, I, I wasn't specializing in luxury myself either, but that is, you, I can tell your left brain, your analytical, your linear, you know, you have these, these, these tax, uh, you know, to help people's estates and helping with their valuations. This is right up your wheelhouse. So speaking in simple terms, if you would, and describing, you know, luxury properties when there's no comps on the market. And that's the number one thing you're going to hear when you're, when you're presenting your price opinion to a <clears throat> luxury seller, that comps not like, man, you know, it's, you know, my house so, is different, right? Yeah. We're better. We did, we did one, I was called in, to try to save a listing and we were not <clears throat> we were not successful because it was really well outside my market and um it was like i went in there and um i was telling him like i think my cma was like 45 million and um the house across the street or the property across the street had sold for like i don't know i'm, I'm just throwing up numbers 30 sure. something million and the guy's like and and by and he's like just screaming at me and i don't want to hear that sale across the street mentioned because it's not like mine, it's not a comp, you know. So of course I used it as a comp, which so <laughs> wasn't that helpful. But anyway, we have a process for making for making the comp more like yours. And we do it the way an appraiser does it. So I have a seven, a seven-step process. And I don't care, I don't care if you have a five-step process or a ten-step process, you need to have a pricing process because you're competing with people, sadly. Sometimes on price, people are going to the highest price to list their property. And that's the number one objection. My competitors, if I tell you that, if I say, Michael, your house is, I think we should list it a million dollars, they'll come in and tell you two. Because they just want to control all the inventory. We just, we just want to control the ones that are going to sell. So basically, if I'm going to tell the truth about the pricing, I need to have a process that gets me to the right number. But more importantly, the process helps the seller buy into my number. So we're doing a performance from the moment somebody gives us a call to come in and to view the property for the first time. And we're executing our process. So the, hopefully they're saying behind the scenes that, gosh, I don't really like Jack's number that much, but no one else did this and no one else did that and no one else did this and he had this and he had that. I mean, when you, and the trouble is, you know, people, even high-end people watch those shows on TV, which crack me up, mm -hmm. you know, and they walk into a house, you know, hand, nothing in their hands, yeah. no paper, no pen, nothing. Yeah, 10 million. Right. That, that doesn't work in my market. It just doesn't work. So we have a seven step process 
number one, we gather all the sales data, get all the comp data, bring it all together, figure out what's, what's the best, most relevant data, bring it all together. But the number two and most important thing is we adjust the sales. So if you look at an appraisal, like a Fannie Mae appraisal form, you see how they adjust the sales and they'll say like, oh, extra bedroom, $5,000. And they'll say, um, better view, $50,000. I mean, I know how they come up with those numbers, but a realtor can't do that. Right. I mean, it takes too much time. You, to, you just can't do that. So we developed a spreadsheet years ago. In fact, our town uses it for appellate tax cases. They use my spreadsheet. So basically, I made a spreadsheet for realtors to use because I feel that as a real estate agent, as a real estate professional, I can walk into a house and say, you know what? Your view is 10% more valuable than the view from the other side of the bay because you're facing west, the other side of the bay faces east. In my experience, people pay 10% more to face west or south. So you just have to be consistent with that. So we do all of our adjustments by percentage which turns into dollars. So I made these spreadsheets if you want, and I'll send it to you. And you can, if you people want, you can, give it to, you can give it to them. And um, <clears throat> you just go in and you write the percentages down based on your experience. And it's your opinion. You can't, it can't be wrong. It's your opinion. Yeah. It is based on something, which is your experience. And, you know, I think out of like, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of times we've used this spreadsheet. I have one guy who actually, he was like, he was like my high school teacher with a red pen. Uh -huh. it, is like, it is like circling numbers. What did he give you? A three out of seven or something? <laughs> no, but I'm like, he's like, oh, you said you said 15% for this adjustment. I, I really think that was like too light. It should have been 20. I said, great. Pull out my laptop, pull out the spreadsheet. We'll make it a 20. And it, when you're talking a $10 million house, what's 5%? Right. So right. On, on one comp. So anyway, so we have a process. So we, we gather the data, we adjust the sales, we compare to a benchmark. So it might be what are things selling for per square foot in Massachusetts. My favorite benchmark is what are things selling for as a percentage of their property tax assessment? Because we are mandated to have 100% fair market value assessments in Massachusetts, Florida and California will not work in. So in those states, I recommend, and you're going to hate this, but I recommend a uh, Zillow ratio. What are things selling for as a percentage of their estimate? Um, so compared to a benchmark, which is an assessment ratio, square foot number, some benchmark is a benchmark comes from somebody else. But I say, well, things in this market are selling for 127% of their tax assessment. I've put the whole onus on the assessing department, not on me. Sure, you're not the bad I'm, guy. I'm not the bad guy anymore. So anyway, so compared to a benchmark, present it in secret. Shh, Michael, no one's, shh, no one's gonna know about this except you and me. I'm not telling anyone else about this value opinion I'm giving you here today. But on Thursday morning, I'm going to bring in the pricing committee from my office. They have no knowledge of our discussion, our conversation. They're all going to look at the property. They have great experience. And they're going to give you their off-the-cuff idea of what the number should be for your property. I'm going to report that to you. And then number six is you're going to select a go-to-market price. I put the power in their hands. You select a go-to-market price. The last thing, number seven, is we test market acceptance. So I know from experience that that um, I should have one person physically through the door for every 1,000 views I have online. That's my ratio. And I track it. It is amazingly accurate. Maybe it's, maybe it's different in your market, but that's 1,000 to one. And nobody can argue with that. 
Oh, there's so many time wasters online. There's so many tire kickers, curiosity people. Yeah, well, how's a thousand to one? Does that solve that problem? For right, you? exactly. So basically, and I tell, and this is setting expectations when you're signing the contract. Michael, if we don't get one person through the door for every 1,000 views we have online, that is the market rejecting our value proposition. Those are my exact words. I don't say it's overpriced. That is the market rejecting our value proposition. That's great terminology. I like that. Right. So, and we can test market acceptance like we never could before because we can see, oh, how many people on Zillow, on Realtor.com, on our own website, on WallStreetJournal.com, New York, New York Times.com. I mean, we can do all the websites together and see we've had, you know, 12,000 showings, uh, 12,000 views online, and we've had um, eight showings. Well, that's not one below. Yeah. 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 So, so they're rejecting the value proposition in that example. Yeah. But if you tell them that 30, 60, 90 days into the listing, now you're making up rules of the game as you go and you're yeah. you're you're not you're not meeting expectations, you are you're ticking them off. So yeah. you teach them what to expect, which is a thousand to one. So this goes back to your previous question. Yeah, about then, managing expectations. <clears throat> then we report that to them every other Monday. So they always know what the ratios are. Yeah, the managing expectations. That's that's good. That's good. Yeah. Our last question before the bonus question, uh, that, which the bonus questions are geared towards consumers. Uh, what's your marketing strategy for homes? Do you have a one size fits all? Do you have every property? You, you create a, a bespoke, a custom plan. Um, you know, a lot of these homes they require a specialized approach. So tell me about something that you're doing that's a little bit different and um, what your strategy is overall that might be different uh, to reach some of these high net worth individuals. So here's my theory on that, based on experience again. Very few high end people parachute into a market with no connection to that market. It happens, but maybe one out of 10. Nine out of 10 people have a connection to the market. When I say connection to the market, I mean, a people connection to the market. So they're a friend, relative, or associate of somebody who's already there. Mm -hmm. So my, my um, strategy is to market heavily to the people who are already here. But it's important how you do that marketing. So we're big on storytelling. So my goal is to uncover, craft, and convey a story for your property. We sold a house back during COVID. It was like four points something, I forgot. And the people bought it totally sight unseen. And they never saw it until the walkthrough, the day of the closing. All right. So can you imagine you're showing up to a $4 million summer house. You've never seen it in person. You're closing in an hour and you finally get to walk through. You didn't have a home inspection. You had nothing. Guess what the first question was this? The buyer asked when he walked through the front door after saying hello and all that stuff. The first thing he asked me was, so Jack, you're never going to use that video again, right? You're never going to use that story again, another listing, right? That goes with this property, right? That story goes with this property. Wow. I said, absolutely. I, I actually forgot what it was. And so I can <laughs> say that, but um, I had forgotten what it was. But um, yeah, they were, people love the stories. And so we always look for the story of the property. We had the one, um, the big sale, but with a lady, a 102-year-old lady. I mean, she was having lunch with the president of the United States at this property Wow! after he just finished his first world tour. And he said, you're, you know, I was going around the world and I noticed that 
there's all these beautiful gardens around in these other countries and their capitals and we don't have that can you design a garden for your country and she's like i'm a i'm an amateur gardener what are, you know he goes but but you know your stuff and so wow. she said yes and we know it today as the rose garden so imagine living in the property of a woman who designed the rose garden at the white house and it took her 60 years to create the gardens at this property she used to have greenhouses at this house where she grew all her flowers and her Gulfstream jet would fly up to Cape Cod every week, wait at the airport while the gardeners would rush over to the plane with the flowers. So they grew in this greenhouse on this property and then she'd fly to her other properties around the, you know, the Bahamas and Florida and New York and, and drop the flowers off. So, um, but that, I mean, that's, that's the story. We had another one where, um, oh gosh, um, the, the house was built in 1898. And the day the house was finished, he gave his wife a, a home, uh, what do you call it, a homewarming gift, housewarming gift? Yeah, housewarming. Yeah. A, por a portrait of herself. Her name was Zadie, Z-A-I-D-E, Zadie. And it was a great portrait because wherever you stood in the room, Zadie's eyes were on you. And um, the, the portrait never left since 1898. We sold the house twice, like 100 years later. And that portrait doesn't leave. She's Her eyes are on you. And so people can't people can't wait to share that story with their friends after they own the house. Yeah, we always look to uncover, craft, and convey a story for the listing. It's incredibly important. I really think it's important for agents to be in their videos. They oh God, Jack, no, no, I, I hate the way you look on camera. The way you look on camera is the way you look, and that's what people say. Get over it. Right. So you, right. you need to be on your videos. You need to be a part of the story and conveying that story to people because it's boring if you don't do it and it's fun mm -hmm. no I, I i i completely agree video isn't going away and you are your brand uh, right. some really great nuggets there uh on helping agents sharing with agents you know secrets of a top luxury agent uh jack cotton thank you and the next two questions are geared towards the consumer uh, we have people watching reading this that will be uh, that are not licensed real estate agents. And what tip would you have for a homeowner that has a unique, distinctive property? What should they look for in deciding on an agent? What what qualities, what skill set, uh, what recommendations do you have for a homeowner that's interviewing an agent to market and represent their high-end or unique property? Okay, this I'm gonna answer the question in a way that'll cover both buyers and sellers. Sure. So basically, here's a thought, prepare. If you're a seller or a buyer, prepare for that first appointment. In fact, we tell agents to do the same thing because sellers think you just show up at their house. You probably prepare. You probably have a bunch of steps you follow. Make sure they know what you do to prepare. So before you meet with an agent as a consumer, prepare your questions. What do you want to know about that agent? So <clears throat> make a list of questions. And, they might apply to you. What is your process for pricing? What is your process for marketing? What's your philosophy on advertising? What's your um, what's your philosophy on showing my property? I mean, pre-qualifying what buyers. What's your what's your process for pre-qualifying buyers? Right. Yeah. So, but do you do you actually in my market? A lot of the competitors don't show their own property. They send a, a twelve dollar an hour person with tattoos to show the property. Mm -hmm. And so um, nothing against, I like tattoos, but anyway. Yeah, I yeah. 
I'm not going to be careful to offend anyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, um, so along those lines, I have curiosity, Jack. Uh, every market's different. We teach agents, yeah. you know, some markets have lock boxes up into $2 million and then listing agent must accompany. Uh, in your market, I have the curiosity. Um, how do you pre-qualify a buyer or a buyer's agent without offending? So what's, what process and system do you stay to be consistent if you right. don't have a relationship with that agent or buyer? Call me silly. I, I trust every agent who calls or showing on my properties until they burn me. And so I trust first. Okay. And so once in a while, <clears throat> once in a while, um, a seller will want to know who's so I'll actually say, Michael, what can I tell my seller about your buyer today? Okay. What can I tell my seller about my buyer would like to know my seller would like to know who's coming into their house today? What can you mm -hmm. tell me about? I don't need their names. First names are fine. But what can you tell me about them? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had people say <laughs> I this one seller say, um, do you know if there do their people come over on the Mayflower? And I'm like, I know it was a boat. But I'm not sure what the name of it was. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I've had some some sellers ask, you know, some really difficult questions. Flip side, yeah. buy side. I know you said be prepared, but what other tips for an agent that is looking to buy a property, whether it be in their hometown or perhaps a secondary, a jet set destination, a lake yeah. house, a ski resort? What, what interview? Well, what's your yeah? What's your experience in the marketplace? What do you know about like a, a lake house or an ocean house? What do you know about the rules of conservation? Where do you find off market, uh, do you, do you find off market properties, and how many of those do you typically find? And when what's your process for letting me know about those? I mean, will I be working with you, or do you have someone who will be taking me around? That's the number one question for both people. Will I be working with you, or will I be talking with someone else? So, so it's basically, what's think about what's important to you in my relationship with Michael, who's going to be showing me homes in Aspen, and what and take, take a minute to write down your question, prepare. Nobody prepares anymore. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Jack Cotton, uh, some amazing uh, information. Again, author of the book, Selling Luxury Homes. Uh, you can find it on Amazon or go to jackcotton.com. I do have a question from a, uh, a, a somebody from our audience. Um, Chris says, how has Jack adapted to the social media era? I've been in the business for 20 years and certainly struggle with social media. So uh, again, you're going on 50 years in this industry. Some of your clients are much older than you, uh, Jack. How have no, you- No, 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 those, those are dead. <laughs> Nobody's older than me. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. Um, here's the thing, and I, and I know I've gone over time and I don't want to be take up your time too much, but you know, I just, social media is what I call the new backseat. So I've got two older kids and two younger kids. When my older kids were little, they would be in the backseat with their friends and I would drive them around and I would, they would talk like it wasn't there. They forget the kids, they forget you're there. And I would hear everything that's going on. So now there's no more backseat. I mean, there's a backseat, but they don't talk about they're texting in the backseat. So now you wanna find out what's going on with your kids. You have to be in social media. And I didn't really think that wealthy people were on social media, but t let me tell you something. They are. That's the only way they know what's going on with their kids. The social media is the new backseat. That's where you go, oh my gosh, Andy's fishing in the Bahamas. He didn't tell me he was leaving. So, you know, um, they're there. So you have to bring stuff there that's relevant to them 
and of interest to them and of value to them. So when you do great videos, when you're uncovering, crafting, and conveying stories about your listings, that's great content for social media. If you're talking about your market and what's going on in your market, you know, here's, you can write this down. <clears throat> Seven factors that will define your town, luxury real estate in 2024, or make it five factors, I don't care. Then write down one through five, and then figure out what the factors are, and then make five videos and put them on social media. I find that when I use a number, it's much easier for creating content. And my favorite numbers used to be 7, 10, 12, and 21, but I've added five because it's less than seven. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. seven's a magic number, obviously. Yeah, I found odd numbers are, are good. Seven, nine, no. three, six. Well, seven is like biblical. It's in the Bible a million times. It's seven yeah. habits, seven dwarfs. And yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, right. Right. But so you write, right. So the other thing, my other secret for creating content for social media is to go to the checkout line of the supermarket or CVS and look at the magazines there. I used to have to buy them, which I was mortified to, to buy like a Cosmo and bring it home. But anyway, you can just take a picture or memorize the cover. And I don't have an example in front of me, but sure. you can take on the front of a cover, on the cover of Cosmo magazine, you have enough content ideas for real estate to last you for a minimum of six months. Write down every single article that they have on the cover of Cosmo, eight ways to whatever. And just turn it into real estate. Yeah. Those have all been those have all been focus grouped to death. They know it's going to appeal. You can take those things off the cover of Cosmo or any of those magazines at the supermarket and turn it into great content for real estate and for social media. Some some great information. Jack Cotton, I really appreciate your time. Secrets of top luxury agents. You are one of the icons in the industry when it comes to luxury real estate. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, jackcotton.com for more information. Find his book on Amazon or on his website. Uh, anything else, Jack? Otherwise, I appreciate your time. No, this is fun. I have to go show that property next to my very first listing in real estate. My first oh, that's fun. Listing. Let me know how it goes. Hopefully you sell it the first time and you represent both sides again. You can't live in it, so I don't know. You just have to buy it. To this. You go there and sit there. You can't live in it, but it's a, it's a cool property. Cool. Good luck, Jack. Bye now. I appreciate it. Again, Michael Lafito, another interview series. Make it a great day and prove others wrong. Take care, everybody.